Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a a podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today in episode 315, we are back with our traditional journal club. I'm joined by Dr. Manali Gupta and Yoshio Nokawa to discuss recent high uh, impact publications from major ophthalmology journals. We discussed three articles concerning posterior vitreous detachment and complications associated with that. We then talk about the Panorama study, uh, which again was the trial done looking at a flibercept for diabetic retinopathy treatment. And we even managed to squeeze in a discussion of a trial looking at prednisolone, ketorolac, and subtenons corticosteroids for prophylaxis of cystoid macular edema after cataract surgery. As always, you can find a list of articles in the episode description. You can also find a link to claim CME credits for this podcast and many other podcast episodes on the American Academy of Ophthalmology website. Simply click on the link and take it to that website, follow instructions to claim credits, and a list of financial disclosures, as always, is included in the episode description. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be rejoined by two of our colleagues for a journal club and joining us first from uh, sunny Orange County, California, Dr. Renali Gupta. Renali, welcome back. Thank you, Jay. Excited to discuss these articles. And uh, Dr. Yoshio Nakawa joining us from less sunny, but maybe sunny right now, Philadelphia. Uh, thanks, thanks, Jay Renali, for letting me hang out with you. you to coolest people in ophthalmology. So uh, we're going to do a journal club. We're going to cover three articles in major ophthalmology publications. So the first article we're going to talk about deals with acute posterior vitreous detachment. It's called Complications of Acute Posterior Vitreous Detachment by uh, Mike Cedar, Carol Connell, and Ronald Mills. Uh, this was published in Ophthalmology uh, recently. Yoshi, you want to tell us a little bit about this article? Yep. Uh, this was a great study from Kaiser in Northern California. And Mike Cedar is the lead author on this, and they look at the risk factors for retinal tears and retinal detachments that are associated with acute PVDs. So this is a very basic and fundamental question, but where there's actually very little data on, but it's something that we discuss with patients numerous, numerous times every day. And so the group, they looked at over 8,000 patients. So this is a large study uh, in 2018 who presented to Kaiser with flashes and floaters. And I really like their study design because one, it's big, uh, but it's not a big data-driven study by like billing codes only with a lot of missing data. Like, you know, you have an iris, spectrum, optum studies, but these guys really actually reviewed all 8,000 charts. And they found that um, about 10% had legit pathology, about 5% had tears, 4% had RDs at the time of presentation. And the cool thing about this study is they looked at all the risk factors and so the pre-examination factors, so when the patient walks in or calls uh, with their problem that were associated with tears and RD, it was blurred vision, male sex, being younger than 60, prior refractive surgery, and being pseudophagic. And interestingly, and I can't really make sense of this, but flashes were protective, which to me is kind of counterintuitive because, you know, you see flashes when you have traction on the retina. Uh, and so... Usually I feel that flashes are a risk factor, but the authors also kind of explain this by saying that people with legit symptoms like severe vision loss with tears and RDs uh, may not notice the flashes because a more severe symptom is kind of predominating. Uh, and so the authors also looked at uh, findings during the exam that were associated with tears and RDs, which was pigment in the vitreous, blood in the vitreous, the vitreous hemorrhage, 
lattice, vision less than 2040. Uh, and if you had uh, vitreous hemorrhage, lattice, or tears in the fellow eye, you had a 12% risk of having a tear. But if you didn't have those three big risk factors, it was the likelihood it was less than 1%. And lastly, if you were more myopic, the younger you presented. This is a great summary of a, you know, a, a kind of an elegant article, right? Like this is not super, super complicated in terms of the analysis, which makes it really easy to digest. And it has very kind of clear take-home points. You know, Renali, they, I, I remember when I was a, a resident, um, uh, Will Park was a fellow, he's currently in Minnesota. And I remember he told me, and I came back with another PVD at seen the ER. So, you know, I didn't find a tear. And he's like, you know, the sobering thing is that, you know, statistically speaking, you know, X amount of these patients have a tear. So if you're not seeing a tear after like X amount of them, then maybe you start to get worried. And that was sobering and probably true. And it made me worry a little bit. Um, 10% of these patients had some sort of retinal pathology. Obviously there's skew now in our field as retina specialists, because we often get referred based on referral patterns, patients may be higher risk for a tear, but does that number surprise you? Is 10% kind of in line with what you've learned and kind of internalized over the years, or is it higher or lower than what you would expect? Um, yeah, I think that the, the number that I typically quote when I see a patient who comes in with a PVD is 10 to 14%. I think this, the numbers in this study were actually a little bit lower than, than what I quote. Um, I do think it depends, as you alluded to, a lot on the patient population. This was a study that looked at patients presenting to their general eye doctor with these symptoms, whereas as retina specialists, I think there are lots of patients with PVDs who see their general ophthalmologist and they're comfortable enough with the exam and their findings that they follow it themselves. And it tends to be the ones where they're more worried or there's some hemorrhage or something else going on where they um, tend more often to refer to us. So I think the numbers were actually a little lower, not a lot lower, but slightly lower than what I quote to patients, especially the, the follow-up rates um, here. The other thing is that the study did, I think it was symptoms within three months is, is what they looked at. And I think that the numbers um, might be skewed slightly lower when you look at someone who's had flashing lights or floaters within three months versus someone who uh, has had those symptoms within a week or two, just because um, those who've had it longer and haven't presented yet with some significant scotoma or some other issue um, are more likely to have a benign exam. Some of the older studies, like from retina specialists or from patients who had a more acute presentation. Yeah, I, the other interesting thing about this is, you know, you referenced at the beginning, the different sort of institutions have different sort of studies that are best to conduct from them. And Kaiser, I think one of their strengths, right, is that you can go through all the charts, a single kind of system. It's kind of uniform referral patterns, at least within a certain office base, like here in the California Permanente system. And so the best articles that come from Kaiser, I think we covered one by Bobek Mochajedi earlier about the you know, risk of cardiovascular events, right? Kaiser's big advantage is they can do multidisciplinary kind of things. They can look at things that affect beyond ophthalmology. And then here, the advantage is they can kind of track these patients and look at their medical history and their ocular history very well because these patients all tend to stay in the network. Um, but I'm curious, you know, I wonder how referral fat patterns fit in, right? I know I've talked to friends at some Kaisers, you know, some of the Kaiser, you don't get referred to the retina clinic um, unless there already is kind of a pre-screening by somebody, right? An ophthalmologist, optometrist spoke to you on the phone and made that appointment. Um, and maybe they're screening some of those patients to go to a comprehensive clinic and some of them go to retina clinic. And I think that will vary kind of hospital to hospital or institution to institution, depending on who the doctor is. So to my question is, is 
you know, 10% again, that number, I just asked Bernali that question. Um, I think that kind of fits with what I kind of visualized in my head. One out of 10, you know, somewhere between five to 10%. And they were quote some studies where it's much higher. Um, but it could be skewed, Yosh, because I wonder, again, if, if things are funneled more. I almost feel now that I'm out and I see more PVs, I feel like the rate is lower than that. But again, that's just my kind of anecdotal feel looking at patients, because I, I see patients sometimes who go straight to a retina doctor. Yep. And uh, this study is nice to kind of juxtapose to another study published in ophthalmology last year by uh, Josh Er, one of your star fellows, and one of my partners, Jason Xu. They, re- they looked at 8,000 patients also at, in our will system, and it was double the numbers. It was like 22% had either a tear or detachment. So I think it will depend on what kind of practice setting you're in. Uh, but they, they also had similar you know, risk factors that were identified. And uh, in that paper, one uh, interesting thing that changed my practice patterns was that most events happened within the first three or four months. And so me personally, I'm curious what Jay and Rinaldi, you do too, but with acute PVD patients, I examine them, see them back in four weeks, and then two to three months after, um, and towards the end of their high-risk period. Uh, do you guys do something similar? Or, you know, I know some people never follow PVDs if there's no tear, and they say, no tear, good, adios. Rinaldi, you want to go first? Yeah, I, I tend to see them uh, a couple weeks later um, and maybe even one more time up through like six weeks out. And then I don't follow them further. If they present with something concerning like vitreous hemorrhage, then I'll see them one or two weeks later instead of uh, longer out, which is what I would do in an uncomplicated PVD. Um, but usually after six weeks, I, I don't um, follow them further unless, you know, they're, they had vidheme and there's still some vidheme and I just want to uh, um, get a better look as that clears or something like that. Yeah. I, I was going to ask you, Yoshi, like, are there certain features um, going into reading this paper that would make you more inclined to see someone earlier versus later? And does this paper change kind of the way you view certain patients now? Are you going to be like, hey, you know, this is a man who was pseudophagic with you know, a history of myopia and maybe I'll see him early. Like if I didn't find something, maybe he's higher risk and maybe I missed it or hasn't developed yet. Or like, I'm curious if this paper is going to move your practice patterns in terms of follow-up. Yeah, I think it does. And uh, some papers kind of change the way you practice and that's a sign of a really awesome paper. And uh, from this paper, the three big risk factors on exam, that was vitreous hemorrhage, lattice degeneration and tears in the fellow eye. And if they do, I'm going to follow them much more closely. And in terms of triaging patients, when patients call, you know, in our practice, we see patients the same day or, you know, the morning after if they call in with flashes and floaters, but the, the team really, uh, you know, talks about uh, all these other risk factors that might be useful for triaging, like you mentioned, with history of, you know, pseudophagia, refractive surgery, male sex, being young, et cetera. And Rinaldi, I mean, would you, would you do the same? Because I'll tell you my, my, my follow-up patterns just to be open because you guys shared them, you know, for me, I, my classic thing was, hey, you see someone who has a new acute PVD, I would generally see them within about two months, six to eight weeks. But then, like you said, Mernali, certain factors may predispose me to see them sooner. If they have vitreous hemorrhage, I have a low threshold to bring them in the next week or two and check them. If they have um, pigment in the vitreous and I didn't find a tear, then I'm really concerned. Then I might even, you know, those are the patients I'll be scan, I'll throw on a contact lens, I'll really look closely and I still don't find something. I'll be like, I'll come back next week and let's recheck and I give them strict cautions. And then if I don't see a Weiss ring, so if someone has PVD symptoms, but they don't have a Weiss ring, I actually usually cut down the follow-up because in my mind, they're sort of quote unquote, an impending or ongoing PVD. And they may not be fully in the separation stage. And often those patients are the patients who have flashes, but no floaters. Um, and it's interesting, like you said, Yosh, they, they pointed that too, is weird that the flashes patients, again, 
seem to be protective, although it's probably they're only recording one symptom on intake or two symptoms on intake. And, you know, if they present with a shadow, then they're not writing that they also had flashes. Um, but yeah, that's my follow-up interval. Now, if they come into my clinic and it's like, hey, I started seeing these floaters eight months ago, and then you look and there's a PVD and you do an exam, there's no break. I don't generally treat that as an acute PVD. I'll generally see them back in like four months or something like that and re-examine. And if it's been years, maybe I'll do a six-month exam, something like that. Um, but Mernal, I'll let you go first. Any, any other differences in terms of follow-up patterns and anything you've changed after reading this paper? No, it's... Um... I think that I do things very similar to you. If someone comes in, like you said, with months ago, they had some floaters and I happen to see a PVD. If there's been no change in symptoms, I actually don't even see them again um, for the PVD itself, if it's already been a bunch of months. Um, I think that the, the, the paper probably changes the numbers that I would quote to patients a little bit. Um, I'd say that's, the, that's the, main, the main change that I would, take home from this paper. I think the, the numbers are, you know, a little bit lower than what prior studies quote. And, um, you know, the, the rate is pretty low of a subsequent issue happening. I think that could be reassuring to these patients because they're worried about it. Yeah. Any final thoughts, Yoshi, and follow-up before we move on to the next paper? Uh, no, thanks. Uh, this is a great paper. I encourage everybody to read it. So let's move on to this next study. Uh, this is one of my favorite pet topics that you guys not be aware of, which is management of cystoid macular edema, right? So um, this paper is called Prenicillone and Contorolac versus Contorolac monotherapy or subtenon prophylaxis for macular thickening and cataract surgery. Um, not purely a retinal article, but always relevant to cover because a lot of us do get referred CME management after cataract surgery. And this is by Erickson et al, published in JAMA Ophthalmology. Um, Renal, you want to tell us a little bit about this paper? Sure. Yeah. So this is a, um, it's a really nice study. It's a randomized trial that compared five different types of interventions for pseudophagic CME. Um, the control group was NSAID and steroid drops starting three days pre-op. The other groups were the same regimen starting on the day of surgery or NSAID monotherapy starting pre-op, three days pre-op, NSAID monotherapy starting on the day of surgery or no drops, but rather subtenons dexamethasone administered at the time of surgery. Um, of course, they subsequently excluded anyone who ended up having their cataract surgery and um, experienced a complication or those with concurrent eye disease, et cetera. And interestingly, they, they did power this study to detect a difference as low as five microns on the three-month um, post-operative OCT central retinal thickness. Um, it was 470 subjects divided between the five groups. And in brief, they found no real difference in central retinal thickness at three months in any of these groups. The subtenon steroid groups did have some thicker retinas uh, early on, but that uh, normalized to what the other groups had uh, later by three months. Although half of the patients who just had the subtenon steroids ended up getting topical drops because of the thickening. And thus, um, that's probably a, a big reason why they normalized and looked um, similar to the the other four groups who were on drops. Um, other take-homes was that there was no real difference in NSAID monotherapy versus NSAID plus steroid topical therapy. And there was no difference in starting three days pre-op versus just starting right after surgery. Um, and then there were no big IOP issues really in, in any of the groups. Um, so that's kind of a brief, brief summary of the study. I think the take-home points are that um, you can 
do NSAID monotherapy, start it right after surgery. And in this patient population, which doesn't include super high risk patients like those with diabetes or DR or a complicated cataract surgery, that monotherapy starting right after surgery may be just as good as, as anything else. And it's a well done study. And this is a common condition that we've known about for years and years. And um, we, we all sort of probably treat it pretty similarly. And, and interestingly, there really isn't a lot of data in the literature, um, evidence-based data, just because these, these regimens are so good and um, were long practiced before evidence medicine became a, a big thing. Great, great summary. And, and I have uh, many thoughts on the study. Like I said, this is a, I'll explain in a second. This is kind of a, a pet interest of me. Any fellow who's worked with me knows I talk about this a lot. Um, but Yoshi, your reactions to this paper, does this surprise you? Does this alter your management of post-op CME or what you recommend to your anterior segment colleagues at all? Yeah, my, my burning kind of question is why, why you like CME so much. And it's like the least sexiest topic. And you're not, you're a true scientist. So you're not the kind of guy to chase fads. Uh, but I'm curious, why do you like it so much? You know why I like CME? And, and okay, I'm getting on my soapbox. Um, let me find <laughs> it. Um, okay, I'm on my soapbox. Okay, so so why why do I like CME? Because I think CME number one is ultimately ultimately actually much more common than we think, and it's probably skewed because again we were referred the patients to CME, but I don't know if this is necessarily something that is patients with cataract who are undergoing cataract surgery get discussed with them routinely. Um, and it's often a surprise for patients. They show up in the retina clinic. They're like, well, why is this problem happening to me? Was it something done wrong with the surgery? And oftentimes it wasn't. Obviously, we know surgical complications such as posterior capsular rupture, anterior vitrectomy necessity, retained lens material. Those all increase the rates of CME. But some patients have perfectly uncomplicated cataract surgery and get CME, right? Um, so we see a lot of these patients. We counsel a lot of these patients. And oftentimes they're sent to us and they, they're like, please, the, the referring doctors like, do something, Right. And the, the second thing I'll say is that often it responds to topical therapy, which is wonderful, right? We don't have to go straight to an injection, a some control injection. And a lot of times the cataract surgeon is surprised. They're like, wait, you're not doing anything that different than what I did. You're just putting on topicals. And I'm like, yes, but there's a certain way to treat CME that is more helpful in these patients who are more resistant. So if they are doing their normal taper, post-op, whatever, three, two, one, whatever they're doing, depending on the drops they start on, let's say they started on Ketorolac, they'll usually start four times a day and taper over a month. That works for most patients. Some patients are gonna flare when that happens. And one of the pearls I learned from one of my attendings here at Bascom was that many of them will still respond to topicals. Go just go back to four times a day, but you gotta really taper them slowly. And if you taper those patients really slowly, you can usually manage them with just drops, assuming they're compliant and it's not an issue for them. Now, and then there's a small subpopulation who they still don't respond. And that's rare in my, my opinion. And then you can go to a steroid. And CME is also interesting to me because a lot of times if you break the cycle, right, if you can get them out of the CME state, either with drops or injections and maintain that for a period of time, it sort of disappears unless there's an inciting event. It doesn't keep coming back. On the other hand, if patients come to you already after months and months and months of CME, either because they're the type of patient who it never would have gone away or they may get trapped in that cycle, it doesn't go away. But really the reason I'm passionate about it, and I'm gonna spend a full wrap of my five minutes talking about CME, is we put all these patients, people always put these patients on topical steroids and NSAIDs when the CME recurs. And it's not harmful unless you're worried about steroid response, but it's adding, in my opinion, an additional drop that has never been scientifically validated for the treatment of CME, which is the topical prednisolone typically. 
The only paper I remember we covered on the podcast four years ago was a Hopkins study that was every hour prednisolone for weeks and weeks and weeks. And that finally moved the needle in CME because prednisolone does not penetrate into the posterior segment well in most patients. Now, if you put them on Durazole, then yes, you are getting some benefit probably for the CME, um, but we don't typically do that. Most people just put on Pred and Ketorolac, Pred and Ketorolac, and Pred and Ketorolac. And I love this paper because it validates what previous literature has shown and what our experience has taught us. You do not need to use both. And the most common question I get from residents or fellows in my clinic when they see me manage CME is like, well, where's the steroid? And I say, well, if they don't have other inflammation, they don't have AC cell, if they don't have vitreous cell, they don't have other reasons for inflammation. I don't typically add the steroid back treat to pure, purely treat CME. I'll just use the NSAID and it works a lot of the time. So I like this paper a lot uh, for those reasons. Um, the only other thing I'll add is it's interesting that you use subtenons DEX because I wonder here if this is a durability issue. Um, even though it's subtenons DEX does not last as long, for example, as trimcinolone, you get less side effects from the steroid with subtenons DEX versus subtenons trimcinolone. But I wonder if you had used subtenons trimcinolone, you would have seen more benefit and allowed for that true dropless surgery with a lower CME rate. Okay, soapbox is away. I don't know if either of you, Vinali or Yoshi. Vinali, do you have any other pressing thoughts on CME? I, I, I exhausted my barrel. I, I approach it um, very similar to you, although I will say, Yoshi, I tend to use, I tend to start with topical unless they've already been on weeks of four times a day topical and, and still they have CME or there's something else going on. Um, but this this study and, and this discussion makes me wonder about just starting on, a, on an NSAID. And I agree that most of these patients, if you keep them on four times a day for a couple of weeks and then very slowly taper, they usually don't need much else. Um, so I, I think that's um, a good a good take home from this study. So regarding steroids, I think uh, I agree that there's very almost no evidence uh, that's based on human data, but there are a lot of animal studies, like I believe it was in the 80s or 90s, showing the synergetic effect of steroids and NSAIDs meaning that the two combined work better than each alone. Um, does that translate into, you know, human data? I'm not sure. Uh, and, uh, but we don't really know from this study alone either because there was no arm looking at steroids only, which I thought could have been an interesting question. Um, and because uh, some people hate NSAIDs. They say it stings, they hate the gray, the, the bottle with the gray ca uh, cap and, you know, uh, steroids do have side effects, but patients don't like NSAIDs uh, um, uh, sometimes. And so um, also uh, one other thing that was missing from the paper, I thought uh, similar to UJ was that they use subtenons uh, dexamethasone, which is a liquid, not a true depot like they mentioned. And subtenons trimcinolone, Kenalog, uh, would be a true depot. Uh, and that's usually my first line of or second line after uh, they fail a topical treatment, I do subtenons. If that doesn't work, uh, intravitreal, uh, you know, Ozerdex always, almost always melts away the, uh, the edema. And I think um, I agree that CME is something that's very, very common, especially after vitreal retinal surgery. It's getting a little off topic, but bringing this conversation to retina surgery, you know, their papers showing that after RD repair, it's like almost 40% of people have CME. And would something like a study like this be warranted in our field? And I think VR surgery is more inten uh, in, in, uh, intensive and more inflammatory probably. And would Ketorolac alone cut it? Maybe. Uh, I feel like the risk is probably gonna be higher for us. Uh, but we also used to use atropine, for example, routinely. 
And I think most of us now don't really do that except for very severe cases. But also there's, there's very little data about any of this, uh, any topical treatment surrounding VR surgeries and how we operate now is just so different from how we operated 20 years ago. So it might be warranted for us to look into this question also. And a couple of thoughts on that, you know, first of all, I think that in some, I've had some instances where patients, I'll put them on topical NSAIDs and then they won't respond quite as well. And then before jumping to an injection, I'll add the steroid. So, so you may argue that it's added work slash time. The question is the number needed to treat and, and it's drop burden and cost burden. It just depends on the patients and what, how easy, how much they're paying for the drops. Cause a lot of times the extra drop can be a little bit expensive. Um, and you know, let's talk about VR surgery, Manali, cause I agree with Yoshi. I don't think we talk about it at all. And post-op CME, especially I feel like after like RD repair um, is, is a bigger issue. I and mean, we'll see it post peeling, but a lot of times it's not, you know, sort of like the leaky sort of CME. If you do an FA, it's not Irvine gas. It's more maybe post-tractional changes, though it can be inflammatory. But post-RD, you'll see these patients with CME. And I've anecdotally noted, because again, there's not much literature. When they do, not many of those patients do get CME percentage-wise, but the patients who do get CME, they don't respond as well to topical NSAIDs as the post-cataract patients, in my opinion. And then you end up kind of in a pickle of how to treat them. You have options still, but a lot of times, for example, your intravitreal options that are suspensions don't last quite as long. Um, but I don't know if, Mernali, first, I'll let you go first. Have you noticed any differences in post-vitrectomy CME versus post-cataract CME? Yeah, you know, a few thoughts. So um, one is... Um, just going back to the paper real fast, I, the, the patients that we see in our retina clinic who come with CME are, are different than the patients in this study, because this is all comers with cataract surgery. This is a study where all patients got treated either before, or after, and, and like prophylactic drops, basically, to see what happened. By the time they get to us, they're the patients who failed this study, basically. So they're sicker eyes uh, to begin with. Now, going to the vitrectomy versus um, cataract surgery uh, related CME, I, I definitely think it's worse um, after vitrectomy. It's, 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 I actually find it really disappointing to when, when patients have CME after surgery, you know, you fix this like awful detachment and everything looks so great. And now you have this like nagging, annoying CME thing that they keep coming back in for. And like you said, you know, if you, if your topicals don't cut it and often they don't, um, usually with the cataract patient, I inject intravitreal steroids once or twice, and they're good to go with, um, these post-vitrectomized eyes, they just burn through the drug so fast that they need, uh, repeat injections. And often they need something like an Ozerdex to get it under control. And it's just, it's, it's disappointing. And, and there are things related to the surgery. I'm sure that impact, um, although I, I know there are some studies, um, that show that things like additional, you know, more laser, 360 laser, et cetera, don't markedly improve, increase that risk, but um, it's definitely harder to treat in, in our vitrectomized eyes. So let's move on to this last paper, which is a total kind of shift, right? So we've talked about this study before, but now it's finally published and we can all look at a more complete data set. It's the Panorama study, um, which was a Regeneron sponsored study I'm looking at a ventrovitreal flibercept for the treatment of severe MPDR. Um, and this was published by Brown et al. on August 5th of 2021. Um, and so just to summarize, you know, for anyone who hasn't heard about the Panorama study before, in brief, this was a study looking at patients with moderately severe or severe MPDR. This is um, DRSS 47 and 53, patients without diabetic macular edema baseline. There's a double-masked, 100-week randomized uh, clinical trial 
looking at 400 patients with visual acuity of 2040 or better. So again, patients you would not normally with classic criteria treat with anti-VEGF. And these patients were divided into three groups. There was a sham group that didn't get treatment, which was sham injections. They, there was a, a flibercept every uh, eight week group where they got um, monthly injections for five months. And then after that, it was um, uh, down to uh, every eight weeks and then PRN in the second year. And then the every 16 week group, which again was three monthly loading doses, then one eight week interval, then every 16 um, beyond that. So every four months. And so they looked at many things. The main outcome measure was how many patients had a two-step improvement in DRSS. Um, and then they also looked at other complications such as asymptomatic neovascularization or center involving DME. Uh, big take-homes, right? So the big take-homes from this paper was, we've talked about this before, what yes, that anti-VEGF, and in this case of Liversip, whether it was every 16 or every eight weeks, did substantially uh, result in a two-step or greater improvement at two years. It was um, almost 60% in the combined Liversip group versus 6% in the sham group. So the sham group, it's not like there are some patients who did improve, um, which is interesting. And if you look at in terms of development of asymptomatic vascularization or center involving DME, um, that was quite a big difference, right? So the patients who got injections, it was 16% uh, um, reduced all the way down by um, nearly 50% in the, or just over 50% of the patients in the sham group. Um, and you know, one of the things I'm interested in for looking at is we get a little more information. Like we've talked about demographics before. So the average A1C we've talked about, that's been shown in some of their tables about eight and a half percent across groups. It's similar to other studies such as Rise and Red and Vivid and Vista. Um, and, and again, the nice thing is now you can see the survival curves. We talked about protocol W in the past. It might've been the three of us. I know Yoshi was there, but we did talk about protocol W at some point, which was the DRCR version of the study with some differences. But it, it, I think it's interesting to kind of see what happened with the PRN doses in the second year, because remember that every two month uh, group was PRN and they got on average two injections in the second year. So actually, um, and they talked about a third of those patients didn't get a, any injections in the second year, which is always the more interesting thing is what happens with the durability over time. So um, Rinaldi, I'll let you go first. You know, we've talked about Panorama before. We've heard about Panorama before. Honestly, the only real huge interesting addition here was again, looking at those patients who did not need as much treatment in the every two month group in the second year. Cause that's again, the, the million dollar question or billion dollar question for this industry. Does the treatment sustain? Um, anything you knew you learned from this paper, anything you still want to know that you wish you had seen in this data set? I think it's a, it's a great study. Um, it's, it's a big part of changing our paradigm and how we treat this disease. We've, we've been treating edema. We've been treating more recently, we've been starting to treat PDR with medications uh, with or without concurrent uh, laser. And we've always wondered, should we be treating NPDR in the absence of edema? We've known for years uh, with the early studies that you get step score improvements uh, with anti-VEGF therapy, even from our DME trials. Um, I think the main take home from this additional data is that it's a dose effect. And so once you go to year two and you switch to PRN and you're, you're treating less, um, you lose some of those benefits. Um, I think that if I were to treat severe NPDR, I would probably stick to a, a fixed regimen dosing for a period of time. Q16 weeks is not terrible. A lot of these patients are coming in anyways, uh, at least twice a year for an exam. Um, I would probably, if I was going to treat this, stick to 16 weeks. It's a two-year study. We don't know what happens, you know, in year three, four, or five 
et cetera. But there's definitely a drop off in benefit um, as the injection frequency goes down. Yoshi, how about you? Are you are you happy? Is there anything missing from this that you wish you had seen? No, I think this study does uh, a couple of important things for our field. Uh, first was that uh, this is one of the first studies having BRSS as an, a primary endpoint. Usually uh, the FDA requires vision to be the uh, primary endpoint, but here it's the direct retinopathy severity score that's new. And that's kind of ushered the way in for the possibilities for anti-VEGF or NPDR. And uh, Jay, you, you mentioned you know, the, the, the main outcomes. Uh, whether this translates into changes in vision overall, we're not sure yet. Um, and I think for uh, diabetic disease, for DME, most of us do either treat and extend or PDRN. For PDR, it's a laser plus minus anti-VEGF or vice versa. Uh, initially, most of us, I think, initially do monthly and then PDRN or quarterly after. But as a community, we have no idea yet about how to treat NPDR. And like you mentioned, uh, comparing you know, the two different arms of quarterly injections versus uh, Q8. Q8 does better initially, but the effect wears off when you change to PRN in the second year. And so how does this translate into the real world? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what the uptake is. Uh, I know, you know there's been an FDA label for this for a, couple, uh, you know, for a while now, uh, but I don't think many of us are treating NPDR with injections. And um, the, you know, the first thing that we always think about is the endophthalmitis rates. And I'm not sure what you guys quote as uh, the endophthalmitis rates after injections, but I usually tell my patients about one in 500 or one in 1,000. Mm -hmm. For 499 patients, this makes sense. You know, I believe the data. Uh, however, for that one patient, you know, blindness from an intervention where you were 20-20 before, that's not good and that's hard to justify. And also in clinical trials, uh, patients are monitored really closely. And so for my patients uh, who are being treated, uh, I, I don't have them come back every month just so I can look. Um, and so I think the outcomes are always gonna be better in clinical trials because the patients are monitored so closely. And if there's any worsening, that's caught very early. And so for me, you know, what I do, uh, I always offer it as an option for severe NPDR. Uh, I believe the data. And I think DRSS regression is a beautiful thing. Like when you're treating DME, you're looking at the rest of the eye and you see the, the diabetic retinopathy melt away. That's pretty cool. But I think you have to treat the patient and not yourself. Uh, and also we talked about FDA labels, but just because there's an FDA label for it doesn't mean that you have to do it. But because there's an FDA label, I think it needs to be mentioned as an option. Interesting. Yeah, no, I, I agree with, with everything you guys have said. I think the, the other three points, and we can go through them kind of one by one or all together. I think the first point is, it's interesting to think about how did they do that PRN sort of decision to treat, right? So they did it if the patient's severity score was worse than 35, it's actually not so severe, but it's a pretty liberal criteria to, to retreat. Um, and even with that, a lot of those patients didn't need injections in the second year. You know, I, I would be really interested, even though it's small numbers, I would love to see a presentation of each of those eyes. Like what are the baseline characteristics of those eyes and those patients, right? Can you do an analysis and say, hey, what patients were the ones who definitely needed retreatment and what patients were, were not because that would be really helpful to be predictive and really help you so that you don't maybe lose someone to follow up. Like, can you risk stratify those patients and know, okay, this is the type of patient who probably needs continued treatment. And maybe you're more likely to consider PRP if they keep reverting, you know, to a worse severity score, or is this patient going to be fine after, you know, a year of kind of the Q8 injections after monthly dosing? 
Um, and then the last point I'll ask you guys, you know, they talk a lot about in the discussion, you know, PDR can be an irreversible disease. If you look at clarity and protocol S, these patients sometimes don't recover vision. Um, and that is true, but, but Rinaldi, the visual acuity was equal across groups, right? And for me, that's actually comforting in a sense, because if you look at the percentage of patients who needed rescue treatment in the sham arm, it was not like a hundred percent, right? So in the control group, you had 133 eyes, 19 eyes, so it's 14% they needed rescue treatment for vision-threatening complications, and that would include asymptomatic NV and PDR, and 39 eyes needed rescue treatment for DME, right? So that adds up to about 43% of patients who need you know, rescue treatment. That's not, that's a lot, um, but the point is, it's kind of like protocol B in my mind. They still ended up the same in terms of visual acuity in the end. So it's, for me, at least, it seems to suggest, like Yoshi said, there's some flexibility built in here. And if you defer treatment initially, but have good follow-up and watch them, you can catch up later, as long as your follow-up intervals are good and still get a good outcome. And I think that's something that's underemphasized when talking about this paper. I also learned a lot, I've said this before, from looking at what happened to the sham arm. I think the sham arm is very interesting in this paper, and it tells you a lot about the disease process overall. What do you think, Bernali? I completely agree. I think, you know, I don't know what you guys, uh, I think Yoshi alluded to what, what he does. I'd be curious, Jay, on how you treat these patients. I don't routinely treat um, patients with even severe NPDR with anti-VEGF therapy or even seriously um, encourage it. I, I sometimes discuss it based on the patient. There are certain things on their exam that um, will, however, lead me to suggest and even try to encourage them to get anti-VEGF therapy um, in the presence of severe NPDR without DME. Um, for example, if on their wide field angiogram, I see tons of peripheral ischemia. There are studies that show that they are at high risk of developing um, PDR as well as edema in the long term, um, especially if I see progressive ischemia that, and I'm worried about uh, macular ischemia in the future. I've had at least two or three patients who you watch them over time on their FA and you see the, the vessels are lighting up super bright. And then the next time you get an FA, that vessel has kind of shut down and there's a new area of ischemia. And I've treated those patients with um, anti-VEGF therapy and you see the vessels quiet down and the progression of retinal non-perfusion go down. It doesn't reverse non-perfusion, of course, but in my experience, just looking at their FAs, but it does reduce the progression. Um, if the other eye has awful PDR and this eye, the, the fellow eye has severe NPDR, I might be more inclined to consider it. But as Yoshi pointed out, first of all, these patients are tend to be working patients. They have a lot of doctor's appointments. Um, coming in for a bunch of eye injections for something that may or may not impact their vision long-term is a hard sell and there's, there's risks to it. Um, and so I think we're, I'm not yet there on treating the average severe NPDRI with anti-VEGF therapy. I'd need to see more data on what happens to the vision long-term and what happens beyond two years and what does the injection frequency look like long-term. But I think there are subsets of patients and um, it'd be nice if they were better imaging biomarkers, but some of the ones that I, I consider are their A1C, the degree of uh, vascular activity and non-perfusion and the course of their disease as I've been watching them in that eye. And then if the other eye had really severe disease, um, those are all things I think about. Yeah, I think that's a, those are really great points. And Yoshi, your, your final comments kind of on severity and approaching this? 
Yep, I think uh, retreatment criteria is tricky because in the, our real clinics, we're not gonna account, you know, and measure the DRSS. Like, when is it gonna be thirty-five? We're not counting individual, you know, little pixels on the on on, on the screen. Uh, and so, hopefully, artificial intelligence may help with that in the future. But uh, for my patients, you know, ninety-nine percent of patients will decline. Of course, it's about how you deliver the options. Uh, but I do have several patients who are really interested in doing it. They wanted to do it and they're doing beautifully. Uh, ironically, uh, many of them also develop DME after initiating treatment to a decent degree. So they're being treated for that now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, a lot of times the problem is solved for us that they do have DME. It makes our life easier in terms of making this decision. But but again, good to see this data and hopefully like we'll see some of those sub analyses either presented or reported at some point um, to get a sense of which patients were really the ones who uh, who did better in year two. Um, Rinali Gupta, Yoshi Nokawa, thanks for joining me for this journal club. Uh, hopefully it was educational. We did a little jump around the map. Um, PVDs, DME, CME, all our three letter acronyms were at play. MPG, triple Y, even though your middle name isn't a Y, you don't have a middle name, right? We, we'd establish that. <laughs> it'll take a couple of more more podcasts to uh, really establish that but you don't have a middle name right we've talked about this no dude i have never had a middle name you never had a middle name okay <laughs> Renali, you never have to come up with a middle name yeah. for yoshi okay the the does not need a middle name that's true he could just go by yoshi like kanye soon enough that's Once true he yeah, yeah. Like, he's just gonna drop at some point it'll just be why like, uh, or a symbol, yeah. like when Prince was just a symbol. Um, nice. But his symbol, um, Yoshi's symbol would be like, I don't know, it would be like a retina drawing um, instead <laughs> of, the, you know, whatever pop Prince had. Okay. All right, guys, have a great night. I'll talk to you later. Good night. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Many thanks to Drs. Gupta and Yonakawa for joining me. Listeners, remember you can find 315 episodes, including this one found on our website, retinapodcast.com. It's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. Uh, those um, episodes are sorted by category and also searchable. In addition, you have options to subscribe by subscribing to our mailing list on the website. You can also contact us directly by clicking the contact us link on our website. We're in Apple Podcast, Android Podcast, and now Amazon Podcast if you subscribe there. And you can also reach out to us via email, retinapodcast.com, or by looking at our Twitter, at retinapodcast, or on Facebook. Thanks to Drs. Louis Kai, Angela Chang, and Mike Vinacasa for everything they do for the podcast behind the scenes. Thank you to everyone who wrote those three terrific articles we reviewed and contributed to the literature. Thank you, listeners, for listening, for taking care of patients on a daily basis, for um, publishing articles that inspire our conversations here each week. This is Jay Schreeder signing off.